0: Self, his false identities. <clears throat> now, when we come to completion of this whole cycle of holidays and we talk about the Sukkos holiday, we have to ask the same question again. What is the substance and the theme of sukkus? And it's very interesting that the question about the substance of sukkus is is really like a double-edged kind of question because one could perceive that the Sukkos holiday is a holiday amongst the 3 holidays Pesach, Shavuos, Sukkot which are referred to as Shalosh Shriggalim. However, most of our literature teaches us that while it occupies a place in terms of the unit of 3 Pesach, Shavuos, Sukkot, but it also has an intimate connection to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and that it's not coincidental that that Sukkot follows Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So while when we talk about if, if we would look at Sukkot just by itself, we could develop a relationship to Pesach and Shavuos. What I'd like to focus on this, this today in today's class is to try to understand much more clearly the connection that Sukkot has and why it is that it follows in, in rather quick succession, Yom Kippur and this entire period of time. Now. What is the substance? What is the theme of the holiday of Sukkot? Well, if we would look at the Siddur, the Siddur tells us that Pesach is man ruseinu, it's the time of our freedom. If we would look for Shavuos, we would say, zman matan ruseyna, the time that God gave us the Torah. So one is freedom, one is Torah. Uh, Rosh Hashanah is the time of God's kingdom and allowing God to become a king in my life. Yom Kippur is a time of forgiveness and purity and that's how it's defined in the Siddur how is Sukkot defined in the Siddur? what is it? it's Zman what? so the Siddur says Zman Chaseinu. it's the time for our joy our happiness happiness and joy Zman Chaseinu. and this really requires understanding because every single one of our holidays Pesach and Shavuos as well and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as well Also have a law of simcha, a law of happiness attached to them. There were sacrifices that were brought with every (coughs) yuntif. There were sacrifices that were brought with every yuntif, and a person had to show up in the temple on Pesach and Shavuos and Sukkot, and he had to celebrate. And there was a mitzvah of simchas haragel, the happiness and the joy of celebrating the holiday. Nevertheless, even though every holiday had a requirement of fo- trying to find joy and happiness in the celebration of the holiday when it comes to sukkus, we say that's the whole theme of the holiday the whole theme of the holiday in other words Pesach the theme is freedom and we, we're happy with freedom Shavuos the theme is the receiving of Torah and we're happy with the receiving of Torah when it comes to Sukkos that's it Zman Zimchaseinam it's a time to be happy And the theme is happiness. The theme is joy. And this needs to be understood. In what way is it? In what way do we understand this? This particular joy, when we had a temple, was very much evident in one particular service that took place in the temple, which was referred to as the Hamayim, where water was poured upon the altar in the Beis HaMikdash, uh, with tremendous celebration with tremendous fanfare there was all kinds of juggling acts and dancing and music and it was a tremendous celebration and the mitzvah was referred to as hamayim, the pouring of the water on the altar <coughs> and there was tremendous joy in fact the Gemara tells us that somebody that did not see the simchas did not see the celebration with the pouring of the water with all of the festivity and the music and the dancing and everything that came with it, never witnessed joy in his life. This is what the Gemara says, He he never saw, he might have thought that he experienced joy, but if you never uh, participated and never witnessed you don't have a claim to having ever witnessed true joy. This is what the Gemara in Sukkah tells us. The Yerushalmi tells us that this place of joy, why is it called Beis HaShoeva, the house of drawing forth? So the Gemara says, because in this joy, that the, the, the peak of this joy was that the people that became so happy came in contact with divine inspiration. They became overtaken with Ruach HaKodesh, with the spirit of holiness that the joy led to Ruach HaKodesh. Ruachakodesh, Ruach HaKodesh, buckets of Ruach HaKodesh came into this joy. So it wasn't just joy of laughing and jokes and Ed Sullivan shows and things of that nature, but it was the kind of joy that a person became intimately tied okay, to God and became a vehicle, a vehicle and a transmitter of the Kedusha that God was sending into the world so obviously there seems to be some kind of very special focus on happiness during the Sukkot holiday and one has to wonder every mitzvah has to be done with happiness in Kabbalah and Chesidahs we're taught that the major part of all mitzvahs is to the degree of happiness that a person uh, brings into the performance of the mitzvah and nevertheless while we say that simch is a part of every mitzvah and a part of every yantif When it comes to to, to sukkahs, not that simcha is part of the mitzvah, but simcha is the mitzvah. And this needs to be understood. Where? What is it in the substance of sukkahs? What is it in the substance of this holiday that creates this happiness? We're going to start simple and then we're going to get deeper and deeper in. And I don't know how far we'll go, but we'll try to go as far as we can go. We'll talk practical with both feet on the ground for a while and then after we finish the things that are for the feet on the ground maybe we'll be able to enter a little bit into the mystical understandings of what happiness is what joy is all about so let's begin like this there's a verse that talks about God's relationship to the world in the way of a wedding and in the way of then God consummating the wedding with his bride the Jewish people Yom Chasunasa, the day of God's marriage with the Jewish people, Ze This refers to the day that God gave Torah to the Jewish people. That was the wedding of God with the Jewish people. Yom Simchaslibo, and the day of God's greatest joy. So the Gemara says Binyam That refers to the building of the Beis HaMikdash. So while marriage constitutes a tremendous amount of commitment and responsibility and a relationship that deepens by virtue of that commitment and responsibility and that is personified in the concept of our keeping God's Torah and God's reciprocating and drawing himself closer to us that's the wedding of God with the Jewish people but God coming and living in with us so to speak to borrow a corrupt term, living in with us and coming into close, close proximity with us, Zebinyan Beis HaMikdash. That comes to its, its peak in the building of the Beis HaMikdash where God comes into this world and we literally feel that we live day and night with thinking about God, feeling about God, being possessed with the presence of God as a person would be possessed or obsessed whichever word you prefer in a passionate relationship with another individual one way or the other we see <coughs> we see that there is a tremendous relationship between the presence of God's holiness in the base HaMikdash and the concepts of love that they are synonymous terms because by God bringing himself into this world and his holiness being so present and so available and so able to be sensed by us, this is a testimony to God's love for us and therefore his giving of himself to us. This is why the Holy of Holies is referred to in our literature as Ratzuf ahava. What does Ratzuf ahava mean? It's braided with love. Now, the Holy of Holies was the place where a person felt the intensity of God's holiness. But the way that our literature describes it is Ratz of Ava, that it was braided with love. What's the concept? Either it's holiness or it's love. But how is it both? But that's one and the same. Because in a love relationship, what does one give to the other? One gives to the other that which they authentically are. They shear themselves. They shear everything that they are inside. They don't reserve it. They give it. They expose it. They shear it. And the greatest testimony to God's love of his people is the shearing of his kedusha, the shearing of that holiness with us, that it's not reserved from us, but that it's available to us, and that God makes it available to us, that we can sense it, that we can appreciate it, that we can absorb it, that we can become excited with it, and that, we can, and that we can really feel that God has merged His essence with us because He wants that we should be able to become one with Him. And therefore, while the Besamikvish was certainly the holiest spot in the world, and the Kodesh Kachim was the holiest spot within this holiest place in the world, but the real way to describe this spot of holiness was the, was the spot of God's greatest love because that was the place where he gave of his deepest essence, okay, which was the expression of his deepest love for us. <clears throat> we also refer to the Beis HaMikdash, that the Beis HaMikdash, some of the places <clears throat> that had the greatest holiness were also the places that were the most private, as the Holy of Holies was a very private place one could not go in there only certain people could enter there as messengers for the rest of the people and so on and so forth and therefore in our Shabbos Zemiros, what does the Beis Hamikdash refer to? Dvir the, Hamutsna the, 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 the lovely abode but the intimate abode Dvir Hamutsna because since the holiness is not just a theological statement of God's involvement with his world but it is also an expression of love. Love is not something that... Th- love requires intimacy. If it's quality love, there are levels of love that can only take place in total intimacy. And therefore, the base Hamikdash becomes a place of l- holiness, which is synonymous and connotates God's love, and therefore becomes a very intimate place in the deepest places where that love is expressed. In our literature, as Dvir Hamutzna the place of God's intimate relationship with his people. The Zohar HaKadosh teaches us that the Song of Songs that was composed by King Solomon was motivated by Solomon, and he wrote the Song of Songs in the realization of what the Besamikrash would constitute. In other words, when Solomon built the foundations of the temple, and was continuing with the building of the temple that was the preparation for the place that God would come and live with us. It was at that time, it was in that period of Solomon's life, the Zohar teaches us, that he composed the Song of Songs. Now, what is the Song of Songs? It is a love song of the, God, of the deep, deep love that God has for his people and that his people have for God. That's what it is. So how does that relate to the building of the temple. Most of us think, ah, oh, it's a stretch of the imagination. Solomon the king was just writing erotic material, but then you're just trying to rationalize it and make it into something holy. But no, what Solomon the king was trying to express was that the Beis HaMikdash was really God's statement, that as passionate as a love can be in this world between two people, so can be consuming the tremendous love between God and his people on both sides God to his people and his people to God and that the Beis Hamikdash personified that ultimate testimony of the deepest the the deepest involvement of God with his people and his people with him what comes out from this entire thing what comes out from this entire thing is that the Beis Hamikdash yes it's a symbol of God's holiness and his presence in this world but on the deeper level it's the shearing of God's greatest treasure that being himself with his people and that shearing can only be a testimony to his deepest love and his unique love that he has for his people and now after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur when we get rid of and we shed off from ourselves uh, much of the junk that confuses and robs our hearts of where they should be loving and where they should be feeling we have the capacity to feel behind the holiness of God not only his presence and not only his awe and his fear but that the message of his holy presence is a message of his love and that we pick it up as love you see if a person is not clean spiritually And if the person's heart is in many, many different places, it is possible and it is conceivable that he has a contact with Holy Presence. But the Holy Presence is interpreted in terms of responsibility, guilt, consciousness, awe, reverence. It's defined in many, many different ways. But once the heart is clean, and once the heart lets go of the things that are not in in truth, the value of the human being, so then that Holy Presence takes on a completely different thing all of a sudden instead of it being a message of awe and fear and everything else and shape up or ship out and things like that all of a sudden it becomes the poetry of love and therefore after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur HaKadosh Baruch Hu instructs us and he tells us build the sukkah build the sukkah and the sukkah in its small little way is a base HaMiktash It becomes the place where God says, come, let us live together in total simplicity. Let's leave the gadgetry and the sophistication of life behind that was always supposed to be a means towards a higher end, but not to become a goal in its own right. Leave it all behind, okay, and just live with me. Two people that truly, truly love each other (coughs) have the ability... Okay, have, abil- have the ability to transcend many things okay? they have the ability to transcend many things and if a person in his own personal identity can let go of all of the things that are false identities as we spoke about last week with Yom Kippur and come back to what their true identity is then they can all of a sudden find a partner in life a marriage with something that they can truly marry and truly love that they weren't involved with before and they couldn't see themselves being compatible with before. And therefore, after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, where the person becomes purified, he sheds the false identity, he gets a real true picture of what his true identity is. Now he's, in, he's ready for a relationship. But not only for, ready for a relationship in a general sense, but ready for a relationship that can take in the presence of God as being an overture of love instead of just the presence of fear and the presence of awe and reverence and what my responsibilities and love are. This is why, this is why, Sukkot, okay, representing a mini base hamiktosh, representing God's presence, but not God's presence in any other way than braids of love. This is why, Sukkot is the time of Simcha. This is the why, Sukkis is the time of happiness because any, ask any person that's in love okay, if they're happy and they will tell you that they're happy okay. we don't have to sit here with, uh, with, uh, with the lambda as they call it and figure out why when somebody is in a deep love they're happy but when a person is in love they have happiness and therefore Sukkis is referred to as Mansim simchaseinu because we understand that God wants to share with us his total presence out of his love for us and that reaches a very, very deep place within us that can't but help make a Jew happy there are many, many different ways that we could that we could interpret possibly okay, what do you want God since you moved in on me are you looking over my shoulder what is it that you expect of me what is it that I have to do but after Ashoshana and Yom Kippur and the Jew has shed many of the mistaken identities and the illusions of what it's worth loving and, and, and being intimately involved in in life, a Jew returns to a very simple thing. Hey, God's presence here, am I being able to experience His, love, his, his holiness is, bec- is His way of saying I love you. And when a Jew picks up the the message, I love you, a Jew is happy. Deep deep down, the most agnostic Jew, the Jew that has anger and rage and resentment for God, deep deep down, would love to be convinced that God loves him. And if he could be convinced of it, and he could have that which could affirm it to him, okay, there would be tremendous joy. That's the nature of the Jew. And the Jew after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is much closer in touch with what his deepest nature is and therefore there is a response to the presence of God in our lives as being an overture of love and this wakes up in us a tremendous amount of happiness. (coughs) This is the simple stuff of circus. The not, not easy stuff but the, the simple interpretation of the happiness of Sukkus. now going back to the celebration of the water we can understand what the celebration of water is because we are taught Kabbalistically that all of the different elements of the world are also symbols if not the end result in physical manifestation of certain conducts of God In other words, everything in this physical world is a symbolism of a conduct of God. Two of the elements of creation are water and fire. Okay, water and fire. And the symbolism of water, kabbalistically, is of love. That's the symbolism of water. Now, love goes in many, many different directions. Love can go into a direction that it can become immoral and illicit, and that's why water is very often symbolized with sin, with with immorality. But on the other hand, Mayim is also a symbolism of tremendous love. Why this is this way is not for now. We're not teaching Kabbalah here. Okay? It's not for now. But water, the element water, is a symbol of chesed, of giving, and of love, which is synonymous with giving. And... The Nisachamayim, when we take this water and we pour it on the altar, what it really is, is God's pouring His love into this world. That's what the Hamayim is. Before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we wouldn't be able to feel it. Before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we would misinterpret it if we did feel it. Before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we wouldn't know how to handle it. But after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur... There is just some natural, deep-down way that a person can feel in the Hamayim that what God is pouring into the world is his love. And this Hamayim is this concept of, of the pouring of God's love into the world and this, what this stimulated in the Jew when, 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 he, when he felt this love pouring itself into the world through this mitzvah of the pouring of the water was a tremendous happiness. God's love for me wakes up within me tremendous joy. And therefore, the Gemara tells us, a person that did not witness the joy of Hamayim didn't see what joy is all about. Sure, you could have seen the joy of getting full from a, from a good meal. You could have seen the joy and happiness of being satisfied in many other ways physically. But there is nothing that compares to the joy That is the the deepest completion and confirmation of man's relationship with God, and when a person becomes totally sure of that joy that God has with him, and God wanting to share the truest part of His being with man, the joy that emanates from man, when man has gotten rid of all of the nonsense and really gets down to the brass tacks, is a level of joy that is an expression of the deepest deepest part of what the person is and therefore the Gemara says if you didn't see somebody responding to God's pouring of his love into this world and the joy that comes from it you haven't seen happiness maybe you've seen entertainment maybe you've seen cheap treats but you haven't seen joy yet that you haven't seen Laira Simcha Mayama Now, this is this is the simplest way of understanding why Sukkot is the time of joy and happiness, and why it's in direct relationship to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Now, let's move a little bit ahead, because the truth of the matter is the truth of the matter is is that this is all very nice, but in order for a love relationship to work, it has to be a two-way street. And just because somebody is pouring more and more love into me and saying more and more testimony that they're going to give of their truest essence to me, that doesn't complete the love relationship. And let me explain a little bit better what I'm talking about. The Balatanya when he talks about when he talks about chuva he talks about the fact that there are two levels of chuva mystically one level of chuva is referred to as chuva tatrai the lower chuva the higher level of chuva is referred to as chuva elai the higher chuva now some some take this teaching of the tanya and just say well it's very simple The lower tshuva is when a person returns to God out of awe and reverence and concern for his well-being, be it spiritual well-being. But it comes out of a spiritually pragmatic approach to one's relationship with God, (coughs) and it doesn't really come from a place of love. And the higher tshuva is the tshuva that comes from love. That's a little bit of an oversimplification. To be perfectly honest, it's an oversimplification. What I'd like to do for a few moments, while I'm not going to do 12 chapters of the Balatanya on Chuva now, but I'll try to give you a little bit of a picture of what the lower chuva is and what the higher chuva is. Okay? The lower chuva basically entails two critical components. The lower chuva What are the two critical components? One component is that a person has to become fully in touch with the spirituality that he possesses within his being he has to learn and become acquainted with his spiritual capacities he has to learn and become acquainted with his spiritual symptoms he has to what we call in psychology okay, being in touch with oneself but being in touch with oneself in terms of what one feels spiritually and beginning to feel and including that dimension of my life into my concerns, into the worries of the day, into the priorities of the day. Now, for many of us, that is a major shift in our perspective to religion as a whole. In other words, recognizing that when we serve God that what we're really paying attention to is becoming more and more aware of the spiritual dimension of beauty that is within ourselves and that the way that that is accessed and the way that that is brought out is in our relationship with God is something that is rather peculiar to many views of religion. Many views of religion say that beauty, pleasure, delight, that's what the world will teach me what religion will teach me is duty, consciousness responsibility and never the twain shall meet and by definition maybe pleasure is synonymous with sin well there couldn't be anything that's that's more a contradiction to what Judaism is what Judaism says is find the spiritual beauty that is within you learn how to delight yourself with it learn the value of it, learn the preciousness of it, and care about it. If it's in fact precious, care about it. Care that you hurt it, care to nurture it. The same way that if you would have a pet, La mushel, I mean it's a lousy muscle, it's a lousy example, but if you would have a pet, you would see its beauty, its fur collar, its cute twinkly eyes, and you would cuddle it and care for it and protect it from the cold weather. Maybe I should put on a little little coat on this. It's a little chilly. It's a little bit nippy outside. And maybe I'm hurting it in some way and maybe it'll get sick on me and so on and so forth. And and, and when I go out to the store, I'll look at the label on the nine lives. Cat food, if it has preservatives or it doesn't, how much more so <clears throat> should a person try to come to... Care for the ways that it might have gotten hurt, the ways that it might have gotten sick. Care for the things that it was exposed to that hurt it, and so on and so forth. That's the first area. The second area, which is much more difficult than the first area, the first area has a lot to do with positive building, finding the strong good qualities inside, building them, using them, getting to like a part of yourself, hearing about that part of yourself, looking at the negativity and then saying the negativity is a lot more tragic than I thought it was because it's preventing all of the beauty that I know that's inside of me from coming out. Basically, everything that we spoke about when we were talking about Elul, that's part of Chuva. And that's one segment of chuva. Feeling and getting rid of that destructive, self-destructive quality that we all possess within ourselves, returning to ourselves on that level of not being self-destructive is one part of tshuva. That's one part of tshuva. Now, then there's another part of tshuva, which is is much, much harder. Okay? Much, much harder. And this second part of tshuva is analyzing to ourselves where is it and from where do I get my sense of being my significance of of existing in this world every human being has a desperate need by virtue of being a created being of having some kind of value and confirmation of his sense of being now there are many terms for this If you want to be a little bit rough on yourself, you can call it ego. If you want to be a little bit more realistic and dignified about it, you can call it self-esteem. But it all boils down to the fact that a human being requires, by the nature of his existing, a sense of his being. That I have a sense of being, and a sense of being is nurtured by certain things. A sense of being can be nurtured by what I have, what I possess. A sense of being can be nurtured by what I experience. A sense of being can be nurtured by what other people think about me. A sense of being can come from many, many different things. But every single human being needs a sense of being. The question is, where do we get this sense of being from? Now. What the Yetzer Hara, what the negative inclination would like is that we should get our sense of being not from our relationship with God and our success in our relationship with God, but that our sense of being should come from a physical world that's isolated from anything that has to do with God. You want to pray to God tomorrow, fine. But your sense of being comes... From your interreactions with the physical world in terms of what you own in the physical world in terms of what you how you interact with the physical world in terms of what the physical world gives you in terms of recognition and pleasure your sense of being comes from there and therefore when a person finds it hard to overcome a Yetzirah we all think that the reason why it's so hard to overcome an attachment of the negative inclination is because there is inherent pleasure in what the Sahara delivers to us and it's not true there isn't inherent pleasure in what the Sahara delivers to us you know what the deepest connection between the Yitzhahara and our, our, us is? the psychological need that is being fulfilled the sense of being that's being fulfilled by the things that I can have and the things that I can experience that's our deepest connection to it that's our deepest connection to it if it would just be pleasure if it would just be pleasure as pleasure the human being has a tremendous, tremendous capacity to be able to receive pleasure from his spiritual being tremendous pleasure so if the person is just looking for pleasure and looking for inherent pleasure there are many, many different places where pleasure can come from maybe we don't allow ourselves to develop pleasure in Judaism but pleasure is available in Judaism one doesn't have to look other places for pleasure but the point is that the quickest way that a person can get a sense of being a sense of belonging a sense of existence a sense of self is by the things that he experiences possesses interreacts and the things that it gives to the person sense of being. There's a deep psychological need that's being satisfied. Now, this is what is called the gaiva of the Yetzirah, the arrogance of the Yetzirah. And it is that gaiva, that sense of being that is fulfilled in what I receive from the Yetzirah that blinds me to seeing the truth, that blinds me to seeing that it's illusion and it doesn't really have value if I can have a sense of being in it, it's worth a million dollars. It can be the cheapest thing, it could be the greatest illusion, but if I can walk away with it, with a sense of being, so then it automatically has a tremendous value for me. A <clears throat> Balmussar once said, A Musa once said, A Musa was once introduced to speak for an audience. So the, the MC that introduced him, okay, said all kinds of praises for him. You know, he's this and he's that and he's a giant in this way and a giant and that way and so on and so forth. So when the Balmussa got up to speak, so he said to the audience like this, he said, I know that everything that he said about me is not true. Most probably he knows that half of the things that he said about me are not true. But it felt good to hear anyway. And the reality is, is that in order to see satisfy that desperate need for the sense of being we deceive ourselves into getting it as quickly and as possible and as strongly as possible and that's what creates the greatest connection now what the Balatanya says is that the second thing that a person has to do in tshuva is that he has to understand that that's not where he should be developing his sense of being but that's false it's cheap it's tearing him away from the most valuable thing that he has in his life and that's God and maybe if I could give you an example of this for a moment let me give you an example of what I'm talking about a little bit of an example in the ethics of our fathers it says like this look at three things and you won't come doing anything wrong you won't come to sin look at three things may I Basa? from where did you come and where are you going or where are you going and in front of who will you have to give an accounting for your life ok it's not over yet now the Mishnah con- reviews and the Mishnah continues and the Mishnah says may I inbasa from where did you come you came from this foul drop and where are you going to worms and in front of who will you give an accounting in front of the God of and the, the master of the universe so the commentaries ask an inter- interesting question this is very long winded very long winded it says Where did you come from? Where are you going? And in front of who will you give an accounting? And then it goes over it. Where did you come from? From this foul of the drop. Where are you going? To worms. And in front of who are you going to have to give an accounting? In front of God. It's very long-winded. It's almost double language. That's question one. Question number two. Are we really supposed to walk around thinking about ourselves? I came from a foul drop are we supposed to walk around and think about ourselves I'm going to be a heap of worms one day I mean isn't it ridiculous I mean is anything healthy supposed to come out of that so what's going on so the commentaries say like this there is nothing that's double in the teaching of the ethics of our fathers the first thing that the ethics of our fathers tells us is like this look at three things and you won't come to sin may I end where did you come from your soul was mined out from under the heavenly throne of God. And where can you go? What heights can you reach with this great soul within you? And in front of who you are truly accountable for because you have such great potential in front of God. That's the true being. And then the Mishnah says, and maybe you were walking around with a false sense of being, which would be from what? that your sense of being comes from the fact that you exist and you are and you possess and you experience and you have all of these things of the physical world so lest your sense of being comes from the physical world so then the ethics of our father says if your sense of being comes from the physical it makes no sense if you're trying to build your sense of being from the physical you came from a foul drop that sense of being that comes from the from the from the physical will eventually be worms, and after everything is said and done, you will come naked before the master who created you. So, what is the ethics of our fathers trying to say? What it's trying to do is it's trying to put into focus: don't attach yourself to a full sense of being, because the full sense of being is so temporal, it's so vulnerable. It is it, it is. It is so it is so vulnerable to to, to degeneration and decomposition and, and limitation and no existence to it. Shed off from yourself that. Now what's the point of this? To break the arrogance that comes from the wrong sense of being. Okay, we don't want that a person I have to take the questions at the end. We don't want that a person should walk around burying himself, but we do want that a person should bury the wrong sense of being we don't want that the person should attribute the greatest value of his existence to things that are temporal Arya Kaplan writes and we spoke about this a little bit last week (coughs) that one of the things that a person takes with them from their consciousness after they die is their sense of being their sense of identity that's what they take with them And Arya Kaplan says, and if a person's sense of being is related to his body, and related to what his body can experience, he's in a lot of trouble. Because a minute after he leaves the world, he has a consciousness of his body, and that's his being, and then his being starts decomposing in front of his own consciousness. It's like, this is me, and piece by piece, the me is disappearing. It's a tremendous torture. This is what is referred to as the torture of the grave now there's a reason why this happens God is not just making a person suffer for the sake of suffering it's to rid the person of the temporal sense of being that he had no business taking with him now the point is like this what tshuva is what the lower level of tshuva is is value your true sense of being and try to destroy the arrogance that's attached to the full sense of being ok in other words, begin appreciating the true sense of being, and get rid of the false sense of being. That's chuvatatai. Once a person begins caring for his true identity, and lets go of his false identity, and tries to break the false identity that is so much a sense of his of his of his being, a sense of himself, then the person can receive spiritual nurturing that can help him grow, because then the rot is out. Then the junk is out, the nonsense is out, and I become a vehicle that I can receive the spiritual nurturing again. That's chuva tatay. That's the lower level of chuva. My God, the lower level. The lower level of chuva. However, what is the higher level of chuva? The higher level of chuva is that after this job is done, then I'm left with a new I'm a new person. Now the perception of myself is completely different. I value myself for different things. The other things that I develop the sense of being from I have been thrown to the side and they've been they've been shed off. You know what happens after this? What happens after this is that I find that the thing that I'm most compatible with in life and the thing that I want to have the biggest relationship with in life is with God. Because in having let or, having shed off for myself the sense of being that comes from the physical world which I understand is so temporal and so limited and so, and so empty and so low and so cheap and so, so passing in nature and I really, really care for that part of me that is precious then I become a very picky person going out on a shidduch only the best for me only the best only the best and I find that the only thing that's worth my energy and worth my emotions and worth my love and worth my giving is my relationship and worth my love and worth my giving is my relationship to God and I I soon find myself in a place that while before I was consumed in how much (coughs) and when and to what intensity and so on and so forth now I find myself in the same kind of a situation in the same kind of a situation but it's with it's with my neshama it's with my with the soul that's inside of me that's come awake and with my connection to God now What does this lead us to? This leads us to a very, very. You might wonder why I'm getting so philosophical over here, because this is leading to a critical crossroads in Judaism, and it's the substance of what Sukkot is. The ability for a person to come to a place in his life to say that I know that I have a tremendous capacity to love. I have a tremendous capacity to become obsessed with. I have a tremendous capacity to identify with. I have a tremendous capacity to be be consumed with. However, I understand that those capacities that I have of love, of being consumed with, of being obsessed with, of redefining my whole identity with, that that entire capacity was given to me from the very, very beginning so that I should be able to have the potentials of having a relationship with God. The fact that a human being has the capacity to become so involved, so consumed with, feel so much love, that now I understand that that entire capacity was given to me so that I should be able to develop an intimate relationship with God and be consumed with that relationship with God and not be consumed with that relationship with God out of a sense of duty and responsibility. A person that's truly in love with another person, do they feel that the things that they have to do for the other person are duties and responsibilities? Even the things that they feel that they have to do for the other person are expressions of how I could show my love and how can I express my love and how can I deepen my love and how can I say to the other person that I appreciate the other person's love and I want to give back the love that's, what the, the, that's, that's how even duty and responsibility becomes defined so while in the first section of today's class I said that the Nisachamayim is God's way of pouring the symbolic love into this world and saying I love you and I'm going to give of my deepest essence to you it could very well be that Nisachamayim is also man's way of saying to God that all of the love that I have a capacity for that's symbolized in this Mayan I am prepared to pour it on the altar I am prepared to give it and to channel it into the service of Hashem so when I said in the middle of the class I said that a love relationship is a two-way street it's perfectly true that Nisach is God's way of pouring His love into this world. But Nisach is also the Jews' way of saying that the, my capacity for love, the juices that run within me, that make me tick, that make me throb with all of that which is li- what life is about. I understand that all of those capacities were given to me and that they can become servants in in the love relationship with you God now the interesting thing the interesting thing about this is that if a person goes on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur through the Tshuva Tatai, through the two levels of Tshuva finding that which is truly precious inside and breaking the arrogance of the false identity and destroying it this love this pouring out of a person that says that all of my emotions and all of my emotional capacities and all of my psychological needs and everything that I have that that's all given to me and I'm ready to 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 harness it all in a relationship to God one would think to themselves for a minute what self-subjugation what 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 total denial of self but it's not true if a person before they pour the water of love on the altar and they say that all of my emotional capacities will be harnessed to serving you Hashem without Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur you know how a person would feel about that number one he wouldn't do it number two he would feel that it would be the the worst sacrifice in the world and he would walk away maybe feeling like a hero but not feeling terribly happy about it but after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur where a person understands truthfully the illusionary sense of being and destroys it and comes to understand the more valuable sense of being which is his neshama and he goes through the process of purity of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur then when he finally comes to Sukkot and he pours the symbolic water which basically means that my emotional capacities are given over and I'm going to try to harness them to love Hashem And I'm going to learn the stuff that will make me love Hashem and I will do the things that will make me love Hashem. It's not with sacrifice. You know what it's with? It's with happiness. The person will... And it's not a happiness that I have to rationalize. It's a happiness that is innate. Okay? Because it's a happiness that comes out of having identified my truest being. Okay? And then understanding... That my true my my truest being is totally fulfilled. Okay, I want to make it vulnerable. I want to give it over. When you really love another person, when you really want you love another person, okay, you want to give your being to the other person. You want to share yourself with the other person if you really love the other person that's what you want to do and there's nothing that makes you happier than if the other person gives you the opportunity to give of your being one of the worst things to do in a relationship is where the other person wants to give of their being and you don't take it or you don't allow them to give it, you're a big tzaddik, you only give, you don't take so you don't let the other person give it that's the greatest torture for the other person the greatest torture what HaKadosh Baruch Hu does on, on Sukkot is that he gives us the ways he gives us the ways and we're going to get this into this in more and more detail soon he gives us the way that we can give our total emotional capacities over to God and not feel that it's sacrifice but that there's total joy in it there's total simcha in it there's total joy in it now here we're going to start touching on something now that's a major statement and I don't know if you all want to believe me but what I'm basically saying over here if you want to put it down in capsule form you want to synopsize what I just said in the last 20 minutes what it basically boils down to is that if a Jew has the, the willingness and the, and the willingness to, to allow his emotional per-being understand that all of its capacities and all of its strengths can be totally fulfilled in a relationship with God and they don't need anything else they don't need rib steak and they don't need this and they don't need that they don't need anything else in order to be fulfilled that that process of understanding that leads a person to a plateau of joy not to a plateau of sacrifice that's critical because that's the only tshuva that will remain the tshuva that the person ultimately feels and never gets out of feeling total sacrifice and giving up and destruction and denial and suppression and repression and call it whatever you want if a person doesn't come to a place where they say I can enjoy God and I can enjoy being Jewish it's questionable if the person will not eventually return in one way or another to his old lifestyles because after everything is said and done a person gravitates to the place of pleasure and there's nothing wrong with gravitating to the place of pleasure the mistake that people make is that they don't think that the pleasure is in Judaism they don't think that that's where it can be found okay and it's wrong and in particular God willing either you have have or will in the future raise children and the worst thing to teach children is that Judaism is hard but you got to do it because Jews are heroes it's poison the best thing that you can give over to children is, is, is to be able to show children the pleasure in a Jewish way of life the joy the happiness in a Jewish way of life and ultimately tshuva returning to Hashem means that the joy is within Judaism that the pleasure is within within Judaism and that my emotions can be fulfilled within Judaism <clears throat> now let's go a little bit deeper ayayay ay, ay. let's go a little bit deeper this is no joke here Let's go a little bit deeper here. I'm I'm borrowing, I'm I'm disappearing into into a little bit of the mystical definition of, of joy. On a simple level you could say what joy is based upon everything that I said up to now is you get rid of the false identity, you find the true identity, the true identity has true substance. Once you're feeding the true identity I mean, everybody knows that when you find the person that's really right for you, that's when you're happy. If you fall in love with the wrong person, the end of the whole thing is a tremendous amount of pain. But if you fall in love with the person that really, really fits what your identity is, so then all of the everything that's every, all of the components of love are there. I want to give to the other person. I, I want to be able to receive from the other person because they have what is for me and I have what's for them so that's that that's all that's all understandable but let's let's take this let's take this one step deeper <coughs> let's take it one step deeper the Gemara says like this the Gemara says like this the Gemara says that on the second day of creation on the second day of creation God separated the waters from above from the waters from below before it was one big big mixture and then God separated and the waters above became the heavens and the waters below became the oceans and the Gemara tells us an interesting thing. That the waters below began to cry. We want to have a position in front of God. Why should we be designated for, for down here? We want to be up there close to God. We want to be in front of God. And the waters weeped. It's very, very interesting. In our terms... I mean, what does it mean that water cries? I mean, it, we can't understand it. But what it means is that that it's a symbolism that we can understand that the nature of the water being designated for the place, uh, down here in the lowly world, they began to cry. Anand, why is it your lot to be up there and we have to be down here? So God comforted the waters. And God said that there would come a time that this problem would be resolved when would that be? when the Besamiktosh would be built how would it be resolved? number one it would be resolved because your argument is you want to be up there near God well the Besamiktosh is God's coming down here and once God is down here so the waters below have the closeness to God in a way that even the waters above don't anymore in other words if God's there so the waters above are in close proximity to God and the waters down here are so distant but once there will be a base Hamikdash, so then God lives down here so then the waters down here have the proximity of God so God said to the waters, stop crying there will come a day that I will live down here and you will be near me this is what the Gemara says and the Gemara says in particular God comforted the waters by telling them there will be a day in the Hamikdash." that the Jew will take in vessels of water, you waters that weeped, and will pour you on the altar, will pour you, pour you on the mezbech, and then you will have your comfort and consolation, then you will have your nechama. You didn't have me, you will have me when they pour those waters. A mystery. What's going on over here? What's going on? So the answer is very simple. The waters above symbolize all of the emotional capacities that are attached to pleasure pleasure and all of the emotions that are attached to pleasure but spiritually what do the waters below what are the waters below a symbolism of? the waters below are a symbolism of all of the emotional capacities and the sense of pleasure and the base of pleasure and everything that's attached to the physical world when God created the world God created a capacity for both and he split them apart from each other not because they're inherently separate from each other but that God wanted that man should live through choices in his life and make choices and grow from choices so God split the waters above from the waters below so, and man could conceive of the physical and spiritual realms as being separate realms but the waters below cried because they knew that the capacity to love and all of the pleasures and everything else really belongs in the heavens. They don't belong isolated down here, separated from above. So the waters above are the symbolism of two, the fact that God separated and designated that those emotions and those senses of pleasure and everything else could be attached in an isolated way to the physical world. And they began Crying we don't belong here we, we're empty of existence if this is the place where we play ourselves out so God said so God said but there will come a day that there will be a Beis Hamikdash. and what's the idea of the Beis Hamikdash? that God comes and lives down here and there will come a day where the water will be poured on the altar what does that mean that man will come to realize that all of his emotions and all of his pleasures don't belong separated. From the, mayan el from the waters above how will that be accomplished? that will be accomplished by bringing God down into all of the emotions and bringing God down into all of the pleasures and understanding that God has a place in my emotions and he has a place to provide pleasure and he has a place to be told that he becomes a totally consuming part of what my life is about so God separated them for the choice of man and for the free will of man but man can come to the place of saying all of the love that I can experience in the Tachtainim I give it to Hashem I give it to Hashem because I understand that that's where it belongs and that's when the waters below instead of crying begin singing and that's the Simcha of Sukkot. what we're learning over here and I'll give you an example of this maybe this is going way out but I'll give you an example of this in a moment no, not in a moment. Now, I'll give you the example right now. There's a portion in the Torah of the Sota. That's a woman that's under suspicion of adultery. Her husband warned her that she shouldn't go into seclusion with this particular man. He's concerned that there's something going on between them. There's no way of knowing for sure. Nobody saw anything. But she was specifically warned not to find herself in seclusion with this man. And she disregards it and secludes herself with this man. We don't know if she in fact committed uh, a sin, didn't commit a sin. When we had a temple, there was something that this woman had to do. She had to come into the temple and she was given holy waters from the temple to drink. Had she not committed any sin, so she became tremendously blessed by these holy waters tremendously blessed had she sinned these waters created a tremendous destruction inside of her and she died from the holiness that could not be contained within her this is the portion of the sota. so the Arachayim HaKodesh says like this I'll explain to you what's going on he says look at that Gemara with the waters that are crying the waters cry because they're so separate from God and all of the things that are separate from God never were meant to be separate from God ultimately they were meant by man's choices to be brought back to God so the waters cry and the waters are a symbolism of this the the, all of the pleasures and the loves and the emotions in this world and they cry because deep deep down they want to be near their creator that created them says there's one place where the waters don't cry where don't they cry in the Beis Hamikdash? because in the Beis Hamikdash, God is in the Beis Hamikdash; he's down here so in the Beis Hamikdash, the waters don't cry the Arachayim says however when this water comes into this woman's body if she didn't sin so then the waters don't feel that they're in a strange place but if this woman sinned God forbid so then these waters find hey I'm bitachtaynim again I'm separated again. I'm not in the environment of Shechina Betachtainen. I've been ingested by a person who has taken the whole physical world and the pleasures and the emotions of the physical world and separated them. And the waters begin to cry again. And when the waters begin to cry again, this is what wreaks the havoc and the destruction inside. This is what the Arachayim says. So what do we learn from this? We learn from, from this something very, very deep that not only does happiness come listen carefully because this is a very tricky crossroads here in the Sheer not only does happiness come from the fact that my Nesham is happy my Nesham is happy Baruch Hashem, it's got what it needed if for all this time it was malnutrition. it wasn't being paid attention to, the, world was, the person was going off on a different stint of a mistaken identity, Baruch Hashem, he's shed the mistaken identity, he's looking at me, he's caring for me, he's nurturing me, he keeps me warm at night, Baruch Hashem, everything is fine. So the happiness comes that now I found the true, my true love, fine. But it goes deeper than that. Not only, not only does the neshama Start, go, start exclaiming joy and happiness. But the entire physical makeup of the human being, instead of the waters that weep below, begin delighting in the fact that they're back to their Creator. In other words, not only is the neshama happy with being back with God, but every physical part of the human being, and that's what, which is related to the physical. And all of the parts of the human being feel that they've come back to where, to the source. So there's, a, in other words, the waters below, why do they? The waters below are a symbolism of the physical world and the attachments to the physical world, but they cry because they were also made by God. They also were made by God. And therefore, the more void, the more that a person goes away from his neshama it's not only his shamah that suffers but even his body is out of whack even his body is not happy yes, the body is being entertained and it goes through sensations but the body is not happy it's a mistake to think that joy is just in the that joy is just the experience of the soul with God ultimately if the soul is happy with God so then the body dances with God too the waters that would otherwise weep begin to dance with joy and here is the beginning of the inkling of what the four minim are what the four types are because our sages teach us that the asraig is in the shape of the heart and the lulav is in the shape of the spine which connects the mind to the rest of the body and goes all the way down to the bottom of the bottom of the back Okay, and the entire nervous system and also very much tied to sexuality and the hadas in the myrtle is compared to the eyes And the Aravais are in the shape of lips. Are in the shape of lips. So our sages teach us like this, that after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur Arova, the Jew is ready to say that everything that is attached to my eyes and to my heart and to my mind and to my nervous system and to my body and to even to my most physical drives, I understand that I can raise it up Okay, I can raise it up, and I can say that all of these capacities should be and deserve to be, and will be the happiest if they are harnessed in a love for God, if they are channeled in a love for God. So the first thing that a Jew does is that when he takes that Esther and lulav, when he takes the hadassim and the aravos, you know what he's really doing? What he's doing is he's taking the limbs of his body, he's taking the parts of his body, and he's saying my eyes that, that, that learned what to love and my heart that then desired it and then my nervous system and my body that then lived it out and my mouth that took in food all of the different ways that we take in pleasure all of the different ways that we relate to emotions and everything that was all part of the Mayim that was all part of those separated lower waters I'm raising them up now to Hashem and this is what it says in Tehillim that David Amelch said that the Estrig and the lulav is a symbolism of kolatz. That every bone of my body dances with Hashem, not just my neshama, not just my not just my soul, but every part of my body dances with Hashem. <coughs> and that's very critical. And that's very, very critical. Because if a person's tshuva remains cerebral, and even if a person's tshuva remains in the heart alone, heart and mind, but that the person doesn't get a new perception of his whole body, that all happiness and all emotions and that everything can be now in a symphony of joy with Hashem, so then he'll go back to his body. My body is not happy my body is destitute my body is poor my body is underprivileged but if a person can find pleasure in the Judaism okay then the person will first of all not be hungry you know what, what's one of the biggest problems why do people leave the path of tshuva after working so hard to do something in tshuva because to begin with they, when they return to Hashem they have one concept Pleasure is still outside of God. It's not inside with God. And therefore, there's a section of my emotions and there's a section of my body that has to still be reserved to getting pleasure on the off hours or when it's permissible or whatever have you, but i got to get it someplace else. Let me give you an example of this. I know I'm going way over my time. There should have been a break a long time ago. There should have been questions. But let's at least try to get the idea out here pretty lousy if I didn't by now but, but let's try to get the idea out a little bit All right? let's try to get the idea out and again it's, it's again tears the Rabbeinu Yaina who wrote the book The Gates of Repentance says in his 20 process tshuva he says that one of the things that a person has to do is he has to demonstrate his anguish in the ways that he hurt himself spiritually, he has to manifest them physically. Now, don't misconstrue that. That doesn't mean that a person has to hit himself and wound himself because he spiritually hurt himself. No, that's not what it means. But the Rabbeini Yaini gets into a discussion about crying, the ability to cry and the willingness to let oneself cry. And The Rabbeini Yaini says that whatever is going on cerebrally and emotionally in terms of my anguish as to what i did to myself and my relationship with god chuva is not complete until the eye can shed a tear this is what the rabbi yes says there has to be zarbamaysa in addition to this the rabbeina yes says that not only do you have to exhibit pain that expresses itself through the eyes which was a middleman to get me into the negativity to begin with but in that organ of my body that I sinned with now I have to do a mitzvah with let's say I always did sins with my hands I used to always put them in other people's faces in a violent way so when I do tshuva I have to now figure out a way that I can use my hands to do mitzvahs not talk to people and make them feel good but make people feel good and do mitzvahs with my hand the same hand that sinned now that hand has to do a mitzvah and so with any part of the body What's going on over here? A person, when a person becomes spiritually evolved and he grows spiritually, it's very normal and it's a trapping in Judaism. It's a trapping that people fall into. They get less of an appreciation for their body. Oh, my soul is beautiful and my soul is important and my soul is great. And my body, oh, it's a troublemaker. It's a Yetzirah, it's a piece of protoplasm, it's garbage, and so on and so forth. And we think that we're being religious with this. And I'm telling you that if that's the attitude that a person develops about his body in tshuva, he's going to be back in Averis very soon. He's going to be back in sin very soon. That's not right. Because God gave you the body. And God gave the body to be the vehicle and the vessel of the Nisham in this world. And what a person has to do when he returns to God is he has to have a completely around on his perspective of what his body is also. My body is beautiful, and my body deserves to be respected, and my body deserves to be held in esteem and awe. Why? Because each part of my body has an neshama in it. Each part of my body has a mission in it. Each part of my body is beautiful because of the spiritual purpose for which it exists. And when I did the sin before with this part of my body, I hurt this part of my body. This part of my body, it was like like something in order for a person to be healthy, the blood has to reach all parts of the body. Let's say a person has poor, poor circulation in his feet. So God forbid if the circulation is very, very poor, that part of the body can die. On a metaphysical level, this is also true. Every part of the body that Hashem gave us has a blood circulation of the Meshama in it. And what brings the blood circulation to that part of the body is the mitzvahs that were intended to be done with that part of the body. And therefore, every part of the body, the way that a person should look at every part of the body is it's beautiful. And I hurt this part of my body. I hurt it. (coughs) Those of you that read the confession that precedes Kol Nidre on the night of Yom Kippur know that a Jew stands before God it's an awesome prayer I think it's the prayer that touches me the most deeply of anything in the entire siddur a Jew stands before God a Jew stands before God and he says like this God you gave me eyes and you gave me eyes to look at good things and you gave me eyes to be a gateway into my soul and you gave me eyes to steer at beautiful things and you gave me eyes to bring in everything that's wholesome and what did I do with my eyes I chose to look at junk I chose to look at that which the world idolizes and therefore I hurt my eyes and my eyes are impaired on a metaphysical level and then he goes on to the ears in terms of what I let myself hear and the mouth in terms of what I let in that shouldn't have come in and what I let out that shouldn't have ever gone out and my nose and my hands and my feet and every part of my body. And then when I'm finished with this, it it doesn't sound like confession, it sounds like anatomy course. When I'm finished with the anatomy course of what I did, I stand before God and I say to God, God, from top to bottom, I'm handicapped. God, I want to be healed. I want to get back my eyes and I want to get back my ears. I want to get those things back. I want to get them back that's the vidui on the night of Yom Kippur I want to get those things back but what's important about that is that when a person returns to Hashem he has to return to his body too he has to return to his body he has to have a different appreciation of what his body is don't let the waters below cry the waters below want to be in front of Hashem. And what a person does after Yom Kippur, and we believe, we believe that God gives us back these things. When the first day of Sukkot comes, you know what we do? We take the heart in the Eserich, and we take the Lulav, we take the spine in the Lulav, and we take our mouth and our eyes, and we put them all together, and we dance before Hashem, and we say to Hashem, thank you for giving me back all of those parts of my body that were so sick before and I promise you that I will respect them for what they should be respected for and I'm prepared to understand that my eye is a medium to pleasure and my heart desires pleasure and my mind wants pleasure and my spine wants pleasure but I understand that I can get all of that pleasure in my relationship with you (laughs) kalat smay se tamana me very interesting and with this I'll close and I'll gladly take questions for the end I I didn't use my time correctly today but the Gemara says an interesting thing the Gemara says that on Yom Kippur we're all standing in judgment and upstairs there's a big big argument going on the Jew is no different than any other creature in the world he's no different God get off your prejudice kick of loving the Jewish people they're no different. They're human like everybody else is human. They do the same good things. They do the same bad things. Everybody is basically the same. Humans are humans, and it's all the same. And get off this, 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 whole, this whole love relationship with the Jewish people. Hak This is This is referred to as a prosecuting argument against us. And obviously the prosecution can drag up a lot of stuff. There are Jews that are dishonest, and there are Jews that do this, and there are Jews that do that, and you know, and uh, get the worst things in the world, and Jews are involved in them. Never mind that Jews are involved in some of the best things too. But there's a big hatred going on. There's a big persecution going on. What is the Jew all about? He's no different. His identity isn't different. There's no difference. Let go of. Let go, Let go. There's no difference. the Gemara says when Yom Kippur is over listen to this this is a phenomenal thing when Yom Kippur is over a Jew doesn't know who won who won we weren't in the courts of heaven we're down here we're praying and we're trying to make changes who won how do you know who won how do you know who won so the Gemara says you don't know you don't know till Sukkot. that's what the Gemara says but on the first day of Sukkot when a Jew takes up the Asrig and the Lulav and the Hadassim and the Aravis ah, then you know that we won that's what the Gemara says and the Gemara the the Medrash explains it very vaguely the Medrash says because the Lulav okay, the Lulav is a symbolism the Lulav is a symbolism of of the specter of God the scepter of God excuse me the scepter of God the lulav is a symbolism of the scepter of God so who would be able to hold the scepter of God if not the one that God gave it to why did God give us his scepter if not that he at the end of Yom Kippur decided that we were the people that we were in fact a people that deserved God's love and so on and so forth this is what the medrash says and all of the commentaries say like what's going on here how is a lulav the scepter of God we know where lulavs come from. They come off palm trees. What is the scepters of God? What's this business? And number two, you have to go to the store and you have to wait online for a lulav and you have to ask for it and you have to pay for it. God gave me the lulav. I went to the store and I bought a lulav. What's going on over here? But what the medrash is talking about is a totally different thing. What the medrash is talking about is the ability for a person to take his heart and his mind and his hands and his feet and every part of him and dance before God and say thank you for giving them back to me and I understand and respect them and I'm going to dedicate them to you and I understand that all of the pleasure that's entailed in these organs of my body are all given to me to enjoy in a relationship with you if a Jew can do that on the first day of Sukkot, then he won on the day of Yom Kippur he won if he can't do that, and he still reserves his eyes and his ears and his nose for, the, because pleasure is outside of Judaism, okay, then, then, you, then what's the difference? The whole you're getting, everybody's getting it from the same place. Pleasure is out there, and it's not within Judaism, it's not in the relationship with God. But on the first day of Sukkot, when the Jew takes up the Esther and lulav, and knows what the Esther and lulav really mean that I understand that I'm not making a sacrifice, and I understand that all of the emotional capacities that God gave me, and my eye that sees the physical pleasures of the world, and my heart that desires the physical pleasures of the world, and that my body that desires and enjoys the physical pleasures of the world, that entire that our entire experience of pleasure and capacity for pleasure and for love and for emotions, there's a way that that can all be experienced and found within Judaism with you, God, and not anywhere else. Ah, that's the scepter of God. That's Shrina Betachtainim. That's saying that if we only bring God into our world, then there's a world. Then there's a, then there's a place that's worth living in. That's the scepter of God. So we take that. We make that testimony. Okay, believe it or not, I'm going to keep quiet and take some questions. Okay.